Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. Harvest Lakeshore is a redeemed family who loves God and loves others. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's a joy to be with you today. It's the first time here at Harvest Lake Shore, and it's been such a warm welcome, great hospitality and love, and I'm so appreciative of everyone that's here in this family. As I mentioned earlier, I'm with ARA. My wife and I are the U.S. directors for ARA, and we're super excited to come alongside ARA and to join them. You know, it's a a shift for us. We were actually, I was an executive pastor of a local church, and my wife was a director of women's at a local church, and it's the same church that Billy and Jen actually attended. And so we were able to see their journey throughout the years and how the Lord has been able to move in a mighty way through ARA. And we went through a couple of trips with them. We were supporting them as a church, and we went to a couple of trips to train the missionaries. And a couple of those trips, the Lord kept kind of stirring something up in our heart. We just didn't know what that was. And so we asked the Lord. We were praying. We were fasting, asking for direction. What it is that keeps stirring up? And my wife and I just felt led to be able to come alongside Billy and Jen ARA. And the way that it happened was kind of miraculous. You know, one of the, about a year before that, they were asking for prayer. And they're asking for the Lord to send someone to come alongside them. And so we were praying for them. We were saying, Lord, send someone to come alongside them. And I just felt kind of this voice that said, why not you? And I was like, oh, okay. And so, you know, my wife and I were already kind of praying what was it all about. And then I kind of hear kind of that subtle voice. And so we kept praying, talked to the local pastor of the church. And we all felt in one accord that this was part of the Lord's will. And it was such a blessing to be able to see the timing of it all. And now we're here joining ARA and helping them to continue to expand God's kingdom in northern and western Africa. And that's the current mission that the Lord has for my wife and I. See, we're all on a mission, some way, shape, or form. Personally or corporately, we're on a mission towards something. The ironic part is that we're not always clear what that mission actually is. Sometimes it can be a little bit blurry. There's this tug of war between what our mission is and what the Lord's mission is for us. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. The, the, the word mission can be a buzzword. It can mean different things to different people. And I want to tell you what it says as you Google. You know, we all use Google, right? And as it says in the Oxford language, the definition of a mission 
There's two definitions. The first one says, an important assignment carried out for political, religious, or commercial purposes, typically involving travel. The second one, which we probably relate a little bit more to, says, the vocation or calling of a religious organization, especially a Christian one, to go out into the world and spread its faith. See, companies and organizations, they spend, they spend countless hours coming up with the best and the most brilliant mission statement for their companies, putting into words the reasons for their products and services, and they invest even more time and energy and money making sure that that mission gets delivered out. I want to take a, a look at a few well-known companies and what their mission statements are, and you tell me if you feel like they're living out their mission. Google's mission statement says, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. How many of you think that, you, that Google does that? They do a great job living out their mission. Another well-known company, Tesla, it says to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. And the last one, one that probably gets us in trouble sometimes, is Amazon. Amazon says, to be Earth's most customer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they may want to buy online and endeavors to offer its customers the lowest possible prices. How many think that Amazon does that well? What about us? What is our mission statement as followers of Christ? The Lord clearly provide our mission statement through the great commandment to love God, to love our neighbor, to love people, and the great commission to go and to make disciples. So the question is, are we living our life according to that mission? Many of us hear the word mission automatically. We think about a missions trip or going abroad. Life on mission doesn't mean you have to sell everything and move to another country. The reality is that few are called away. Most are called to stay. My wife gave me that quote, so I'm going to say that again to you. Few are called away. Most are called to stay. See, the reality is that some of us are called to the nations. Some of us are going to go and be missionaries, but most of us are just called to our neighborhoods, just to our neighbors. See, a life on mission, if you haven't guessed, is the message for today. It's the title of the message today. We're going to be reviewing in Acts, a life of a man who was fully devoted to living a life on mission, ordinary person like you and I, who was part of the local community, part of the early church. His name is Stephen. His story will hopefully help us to understand what a life on mission really looks like and how you and I can replicate and put into practice some of the attributes that we'll learn and see from a life that he dedicated. Will you join me in prayer as we go into God's word, please? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful morning that you've given us life and breath and a new opportunity to fulfill the plan and purposes you have for us in this day, Father. As we gather together, Lord, as we open our mouths to be able to adore you, to worship you, to praise you, Father, we now open our hearts and our ears and our minds to be able to hear your word and what you have to say to us today, Father. Help us, Father, to be able to receive the message regardless of where we're at in our walk with you. And allow for your Holy Spirit to move in a way that transforms us, that lets us leave this place different than the way we came in, Father. May you speak through me as your servant, as your vessel. May not be my words, but your words, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I want to give you the full picture. So we're going to be jumping around a couple chapters in Acts, and you can follow along with me. If you're taking notes, the first point that we're going to talk about here is called, it said, 
answers the call to serve. A life on mission answers the call to serve. Little background here. We're in the book of Acts. It's written by Luke. It's the account of what many would think is the early church, where the believers, what the believers did post Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. Some would describe this as the words of Luke in a methodical way, as the way he describes the early church. And, you know, the Holy Spirit had come. Peter had preached to multiple, to thousands, and converted. He was doing signs, miracles, and wonders. Things were happening. Persecution started. They started to go in prison and be arrested, and the church was gathering, and numbers were growing. That's the setting that we see here in chapter 6. But there was a problem that came up in the church. The widows were being neglected. And that's where we find ourselves as we go into this particular verse. It says, the complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. See, within the church, there were Jews who spoke Greek, and then there was Greeks who were complaining. They were complaining about the Hebrews, the Jews and the Hebrews, as they were discriminating against the widows. And it's, I find it to be interesting that the early church had a sort of a discrimination problem. It often felt something that we feel and sense sometimes here at the local church today. Believers discriminated against one another, not just by language, but also by culture. And although that was the problem, one of the main factors for this verse and this problem was that disciples were increasing in numbers. There were too many people to serve, and that led to them to see and look and, and realize that there's a problem here. There's a section of our church that's not being served. And naturally, you know, the Jews and the, and the Hebrews and the Greeks were kind of going towards what they felt more comfortable with, who they're more familiar with, and the language that they were more com comfortable with. And the complaint now comes to the disciples. And so what happens? We read that in verse 2 that they summit the 12, the full numbers of disciples, and it says it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 3 says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom will appoint to this duty. Their response was almost like, wait a minute. The problem is just not our problems as disciples. It's the whole church's problem, right? We're all one body. And so everyone is a disciple of Christ, not just the 12. It's not that they didn't want to serve. It's not that it was beneath them. They recognized that one, one, one body with many parts. And their main assignment was to preach the word of God, and they wanted people to step up, others to serve the widows. It's funny how we can see that play out in the church still today. To God be the glory, post-pandemic, people are coming back to church. There's new people coming, new people visiting. Where the churches are increasing in numbers. And like we read, sometimes there's complaints that come. And the first response is to go to the pastor, rightfully so. So-and-so needs a visit. No one's seen her in a while. Or so-and-so has needs, and the church should do this ministry or do that ministry. And maybe it doesn't happen here, but in my church, it happens all the time. People come with these complaints. As the text said, we should be praying that the Lord would raise up some people to fill those needs, to be able to step in and to be able to know that they have the giftings and talents. As the scripture says, it says that the, there's men and women of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom who can be appointed for the duty. Not because pastors don't want to, but because we're one body made of many parts. And we're all here to help each other out. We each play a role in the church. Each of us are here to love and to serve one another, to identify and encourage each other's gifts and help us to be able to do the work 
of ministry. It's not just the pastor's responsibility or the elders, or in this case, Wes and Sarah, who do such a great job here at the church and others that support. I mean, you agree with that. All of us take a part in this. That's actually what the scripture says here. If you go to verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So as they were hearing this, the congregation was being stirred up. It pleased them to realize, you know, we do play a part in this. And so everyone was agreeing to be a part of it. So they chose seven people, seven men, and one of them was Stephen. Once the workload was spread out amongst the body, the word of God continued to be preached, and multiplication followed. We see right there the results of chosen people who are stepping up. God's kingdom gets expanded when people step up and work together. Amongst them was Stephen. He answered to the call. Verse 8 describes him as Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs amongst the people. His response by serving, it gave the opportunity for the Lord to do great ministry amongst him. He didn't have an excuse. He didn't see the job to be too small for him to be able to do. The text describes him that he had qualifications to do many things because he was spirit-filled. He had grace. He had power. But he didn't let that pride prevent him from serving the widows of the church or stepping up to that particular need. He made a choice to answer the call and to follow Jesus' example to serve, not to be served. See, Jesus showed us the model of servanthood, of servant leadership, how to love, how to teach, how to serve others in the way that he did. And one of the ways that he did that is through a basin. We see this basin of water. There was something similar in shape and function that Jesus used. And when he showed and demonstrated servant leadership, we're familiar with the story, he went to wash the disciples' feet. So he had the basin, the water. He sat there and he washed the disciples' feet. He showed servanthood. And he grabbed the towel and he wiped their feet. This is Jesus, King of kings and the Lord of lords, is serving the disciples as a model for them to be able to follow. And that's one example we see. But another example we see what the basin bowl of water is from Pilate. Pilate had a basin as well. He was a leader as well. But when the time came for him to be an example, he got his hands in the bowl, he washed it, and he said, see to it yourself. Basically telling the crowd and the people and Jesus, that's your problem, not mine. So we have two different ways of responding to an opportunity to serve. The way Jesus did, washing the disciples' feet, the way Pilate did, by just washing his hands and saying, it's not my problem. See to it yourself. Their church has needs, and sometimes in our life, we could be that way. We could say, I have enough going on right now in life. It's just not my problem. We wash our hands like Pilate. But others step up and say, I'm here to serve. The Lord taught us to serve and not to be served, and that's the mission, the life I want to live. A life on mission is willing to serve. That's our first point, to bring God glory. Our second point here is a life on mission is willing to give it all, willing to give it all. We'll look at Acts chapter 7. You turn with me to the next chapter there. We're going to be doing verse 54 through 60, and then chapter 8, 1 through 2. You follow along with me. And it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, glazed into heaven and saw the glory of God 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the southern man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Continue on in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devoted men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. We see here that Stephen was not only serving the widows, then he became a witness about Jesus. His life was all in, a life on mission. He didn't just stop with filling a need at the local church and serving. He didn't just stay in one lane or in a box and say, this is all I do. I do this, and that's it, just my job. No, he wanted to make sure he lived a life on mission 24-7. It was a lifestyle for him. He didn't leave it just for Sundays. He lived it out all week long. And I started to wrap my mind around this, and I felt a little bit of conviction. See, I wasn't always good at sharing the gospel with people. Serving came natural to me, to serve in the church and help out. But then outside of the four walls and going to the workplace or going to the communities, being able to share the gospel wasn't something that was natural. I had to be more intentional with that. I looked for different ways that I could feel that I would be able to exercise and do that. I had to confront the question, am I all in or not? Because most of what I thought was, I'll just show them by my fruits. I'll just be nice and loving and caring, and that way they'll know I'm a Christian, which is not a bad thing, but never took it to the next level of being able to share about the gospel, being able to help people understand why I live the way I live and for who I live the way I live. See, as believers, we can coast in our walk, be kind of under the radar. The reality is, and the question that we have to ask ourselves, is that really a life on mission for the Lord? Is it truly testifying of the Lord's goodness in our lives? Is it loving to those that don't know the truth, who are lost and don't have the assurance of eternal life? The text says that we see here that Jesus, that Stephen was being confronted about Christ by his fellow Jews. And although they saw fruits in him, they would see that he had grace and power and wisdom and he was full of spirit. They rejected what he said about Jesus the Messiah. It was too radical, too offensive for them to understand. Jesus the Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, but my wife and I, we have conversations with people all the time that we love. Sometimes it's hard for them to understand that. You know, yes, be a Christian. Yes, be Jesus, no problem. But to be Lord or Savior over our life, that can be a little borderline radical or fanatic. Everyone's values can be different. Beliefs and decisions, lifestyle choices can be different to the point where it's offensive. Some of our family members even question the fact that we left careers to go be missionaries. Just the thought of that, that your life is around Christ and the mission for him is sometimes hard to understand, even for believers. We had to come to the reality of what's more important, an impartial stand for the sake of a good relationship with a friend or a loved one, or a life on mission because that's what the Lord has called us to live. 
A life on mission doesn't hide who you are in Christ. Can't be one way on Sundays at church and another way during the week, Monday through Saturday, while we're around other people and not in the comfort of our brothers and sisters. Can't be silent of whom and what we believe in. We just read the creed. Do we actually believe in what we believe? The things that we say. Stephen didn't hide. In fact, he, he did the opposite. He was bold about his belief. He confronted his fellow Jews about who Jesus was. We see that in verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. This led to him being ceased and charged with blasphemy against him. People wanted to kill Stephen just because of who he believed in and who he was describing. He was persecuted for believing different than them. In many countries around the world today, we still see that happening. People beating and killing their own family members just because they believe differently than they do. Now, that really changed my life. You know, when I went to a couple trips to ARA, I had lunch, and we're sitting with missionaries, and we're eating, and we're talking face-to-face, and as they were sharing their testimony, one of the brothers that I met actually had been persecuted. Not only was his birth certificate ripped because his family said, if you're no longer a Muslim, you don't exist. You're not in our family. That was his first thing, persecuted by his own family. Then society was persecuting him. He actually got arrested, and he got beaten. And when I thought about that for a moment, I was like, I had never met someone that was actually persecuted. Never met someone until that very moment. Yeah, again, we've heard of people that say, you know, they made fun of me at school or, you know, family or someone doesn't want to talk to me anymore, but beaten, arrested, birth certificate, ripped up like you never existed. I have never spoken or been able to fellowship with someone who's been persecuted. And it changed my whole perspective of what persecution really meant because we can't fathom that here in America. But we're seeing glimpses of our religious freedom being challenged. The world is getting darker around us, and we have to choose if we're all in on mission for God, or are we not? Famous verse that we know of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15, tells us that. Choose this day who you will serve. And the response was, for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. We have to make a choice in this day who we will serve and who we will live for. And I love the posture that describes about Stephen when he's getting stoned. You can read it in verse 55. You want to follow along again. It says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, glazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. One of the things that really struck me as I'm reading these verses is how it emphasizes twice that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Maybe you didn't catch that. We just read on the creed that it said Jesus is sitting in the right hand. Most of the times when you hear a description of of Jesus is sitting. And so we see here that Stephen is getting stolen and he has this vision and sees of Jesus standing. Some of you that are parents and you have your children who are in sports, think about this for a moment. Your kids are in the championship game, the, the score's tied, and your son or daughter has the ball and the opportunity to win and score. And, and if they did score, you wouldn't just sit there with a golf clap, just golf clap there. Yeah, great job, Cindy. You wouldn't do that. 
If it was your child and they won the game for the championship game, you would stand out of your seat. You would have this celebration. That's my, you would be proud. That's my child. That's my kid. And that's what we see here in the description. As Stephen is being stoned, says he sees Jesus standing. Well done, good and faithful servant, celebrating his son who's living a life on mission to the very end. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps to think about that. How will I be received when it's my time to graduate from heaven, from earth to heaven? What would be said about me? Stephen is the first recorded martyr post-Christ, an ordinary man who served in the local church. He wasn't the one speaking to thousands. He wasn't the one that converted 5,000 and 3,000. That was Peter. Stephen was just a normal, ordinary man in the local church, but was filled with the Spirit. He was humbled and lived a life on mission for Christ. One of the observations that I found as well fascinating was the similarities of the expressions of Stephen as he was getting stoned and as Christ's crucifixion. I'll read this to you. The Moody Bible Commentary highlighted this out, and I thought it was fascinating. Stephen says as he's getting stoned, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen says, getting stoned, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, when he was being crucified, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Last words for Stephen, he says, having said this, he fell asleep. The last words that we hear about Jesus, having said this, he breathed his last. There's these similarities of how Stephen was getting stoned in his final moments, and now Jesus, when he was being crucified, And that's what we're called to do, to be imitators of Christ. Stephen certainly did that to the very last breath. There's no question that he lived a life on mission. In the last observation of Stephen being stoned, we see the introduction of Saul. It's the first time that the Bible shares and mentions Saul. Describes him as a young, zealous leader of the Jews, that garments were thrown at his feet as approval to Stephen's stoning. We see the confirmation out in Acts chapter 8, 1 and 2. We just read that, but let's refresh our memory here. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except, for, except the apostles. Devoted men buried Stephen and made, and made great lamentations over him. Stephen's death led to the church being persecuted by Saul. This also led believers to be scattered to other regions. Stephen was buried and lamented by devoted men, his peers, his co-laborers in ministry. They honored him. They served him. They realized and saw who he was and what he did for Christ. So the first point was answers a call to Christ, a life on mission, answers a call to Christ, answers a call to serve. The second one, a life on mission, is willing to give it all. And the last one here as we wrap up, a life on mission leaves a lasting legacy, leaves a lasting legacy. Let's turn to Acts chapter 11. We continue with the story of Stephen here. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 26. We can read that together here. And it says, starting in verse 19, and those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, 
preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tyrus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with a church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So what happens past Stephen's death? Saul fiercely goes after the church to persecute him. But then he has an encounter with Jesus. And his name changes to Paul. Peter has this vision of the gospel being for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Cornelius and many Gentiles convert, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter shares updates about all that's going on to the church to give God glory, which is where we find ourselves here in this update in chapter 11 about the church of Antioch. As we read before, many were scattered after Stephen's death. We're reminded of that detail there in verse 19. The believers were scattered because of persecution. They did not stop preaching the word of God. They went to different regions. Some priests to the Jews, other priests to the Gentiles. This was the fulfillment of Jesus' last words. We read that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll see it here in the screen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the scattering and the, peop- and the fact that they were preaching to Jews and Gentiles was a fulfillment of, of Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven. It's the mission that he gave out. Jesus said, go witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria and the end of the earth. The mission was clear then and it still is today. 2,000 years later, the mission hasn't changed. It's the same mission for us to go and to reach. In our modern understanding, I want to kind of put this verse into context today. You'll see here in the screen a little graph. Jerusalem was the city, the town, the local city. Let's say St. Joseph or uh, Stevensville, right? Is that correct here? That's the, the local, the local area. That's what's referenced there by Jerusalem. Judea. Judea mainly represents the culture. There are Jews and Judea is a region there, and they all kind of thought the same way, had the same traditions, had the same beliefs. You can say kind of like Michigan. You all you know, have a certain way of lifestyle, a certain way of being. It's different than, let's say, other states. Samaria would be then going out to another state and reaching out people, and then obviously the end of the earth, meaning the world. And so you see how it applies here today, right? We're called to be on mission here locally, called to be a mission for people that are like-minded, maybe from a cultural standpoint, but we're also called to leave, to go to different states, different parts of the nation, and eventually, of course, to the world. And each person plays a part in that, um, that state as Jesus has called us and gave us the mission to do. We observe from the verse that although they were scattered, the believers stayed focused on the mission. That's one of the things I love about ARA. You know, the Africans, they, they're moving to other countries. They're leaving behind what they know, but they're focused on the mission, not looking behind at what they left, but realizing this is what they're called to do, and they're willing to do that. Verse 21 shows us that at the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And that's 
one of the things I love to see because as these missionaries take step in faith and they go into these different countries, the hand of the Lord is with them. And they're seeing how people are coming to Christ and it's so encouraging for them to be able to see that. And we see here in the text that early church in Antioch, they end up sending Barnabas because so much was going on. There was so much fruit of what was happening. So they bring Barnabas and they describe Barnabas as a good man, verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And I love the fact that it describes him as that way, but also showing, continuing to show that growth was happening as more and more people were coming, as more and more people were coming alongside to continue to expand, the Lord was moving and growing. There was this explosion of converts that was happening in the church, and it results in verse 25 now, Barnabas going and getting Paul. So the church asked for Barnabas to come because there's so much happening, and then Barnabas sees it all happening. Now Barnabas goes, we got to go get Paul because they wanted to come alongside and make sure they continue to help the church grow. And for a whole year, they were doing that. So Paul comes. He disciples, he nurtures this church plant for a year. And throughout the process, the disciples being, are known as Christians. First time in the Bible that you see the word Christians. Now, we find the term three times in the Bible. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Acts chapter 26, verse 28, more of a mockery. And then finally, Peter used it as a reference in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. The term that was used in verse 26 was actually a label. Christians, people who replicate Christ. That was the original term, the original reason why that word came about. We were imitators of Christ. And I can imagine that was a compliment for them. If you're disciples, you're on the field and you're hearing all these things, you're seeing all these things, and then you get labeled as a Christian, that resemblance that you're an imitator of Christ, to realize that what they were doing was a resemblance. Now, that term is not necessarily used the same way today. Today, culture is used a bit, a bit loosely, you know, when we say I'm a Christian. You know, for some, it means that they believe in God. For other, it means they believe in Christ. For many, it just means that it's like a moral kind of stamp. Just like, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person, I'm a good, good uh, citizen, etc. has a different weight, but the original term meant to describe people who were imitators of Christ. Not just followers, but imitators. A life on mission, that they were serving, showing compassion. They were loving, they were sharing the gospel, following the Lord's command and mission. Paul Tripp, he writes, he writes and describes it like this. There's a difference between functional theology and confessional theology, meaning living out what you believe is functional. Just lip service is confessional. So I'm a Christian. That's just, that could be just lip service. Functional is I'm a Christian, and I'm living out that actual walk. Functional versus confessional. Being a Christian has weight. It means something when we say we're in a Christian. And I, I kind of uh, witnessed that firsthand. My last trip to Africa, we were at a country that's very hostile. And we arrived there, and they picked us up in, in a pickup truck. And it was Billy and a missionary, and then my wife and I. And we're sitting in the car, and this country had just had a change in leadership. Uh, the leadership was forced out. The actual local army there forced the leadership out. And so there were all these checkpoints because they believed there was rebellion coming. And so they had different checkpoints to check people, make sure no one was coming to that area, specifically where the airport was, which was kind of the capital. And so we're sitting in the car, we're driving, we, we reached this checkpoint. The first time I've seen a checkpoint in Africa, and I was there, and the gentleman, the officer is looking at our cars. He asked for all of our bags. He has his flashlight. He's looking at every single thing, glove box, everything. And all of a sudden, the missionary was next to me. 
he goes to them and he says, hey, we're Christians. We're pastors. And before that, prior to that, I was told not to share that I was a pastor or a Christian because this is so hostile. There's 99.9% Muslim. And so when he said that, I'm like, immediately the officer turned around, turned off his flashlight and let us go. So I asked him, I was like, what was that all about? I thought we said we couldn't say we're pastors, we're Christians. He says, the new leadership that just took over, they trust more Christians than Muslims because they practice what they preach. All he had to say was, we're Christians. No problem. See you later. See, there's weight when we identify ourselves as Christians. And the question is, do we really realize that? See, I realized that in that moment, right? Because the person was able to just take our word for it by saying we're Christians because what they experienced with other Christians was true. They're loving, they're compassionate, they're caring, they're serving. They mean well. They have the intentions of the Lord on their hearts. So it became a different thing for me. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. At that moment, I realized what that meant. Just to be able to say, we're a Christian, a good name. That's all that mattered. That's all he needed to hear. Stephen not only had a good name and favor from the Lord, but he left a legacy. He left an inheritance. He was described as a man full of faith, grace, and power, and the Holy Spirit. Stephen is mentioned only five times in the whole Bible, in the books of Acts. Yet the impact transcended for thousands of years. He served the needs of the church. He lived a life on mission to the point of his death. His ministry was local, but his impact and influence went abroad. We saw a couple chapters later, people were scattered, and it's still the influence of Stephen that was there. His death scattered believers to different regions where both the Jews and the Gentiles were now being reached. Our church was established in Antioch, the first diverse church that included Jews and Gentiles, and the term Christian was introduced as a result of the events following Stephen's death. That's the lasting legacy of a man who lived a life on mission. Locally, right where he was at, he didn't sell all his things. He didn't move to another country. He stayed faithful where he was at locally and made a daily impact that had an impact all across the region. What will be our legacy? What will be said of us when the time comes? I don't know about you, but I think about that all the time. Think about how am I going to be remembered? Am I going to be remembered by my gifts and talents and the things that I accomplished here on earth? Or am I going to be remembered of the life that I lived on mission for the Lord? A lasting legacy that passes my generation to the next generation, a spiritual inheritance, like heroes of the faith that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. We read about all the heroes, heroes of the faith that still impact our life. Or the ordinary faithful men that Paul describes all the time in his letters. We don't know much about them, but he describes them by name. Faithful people who are living a life on mission and impacting the kingdom. What will be said or written about you and I? What will be our lasting legacy? Will it be a life on mission for Christ? Recently, I watched this popular show. And the main character, season finale, the main character um, was dying passing away. And they describe in this show that as she was passing away, she was getting a glimpse of a train. And the train, there was different carts. And as she entered each cart, she met someone. 
And the cart, each cart would have someone, a friend, a family member, describe her and say, oh, you were such a great mother. You did all these things for your kid. And then she goes to the next cart and says, oh, you were such a great worker and employee. You did so fantastic things for the company, your career. And she goes to the other car, and the other car would say, oh, you're such a great neighbor. You, know, you helped me have sugar when I need it, or the things that I need to take care of my kids, et cetera. And all these cars were describing different things that she did in life. And they reached the last car, and her husband, who had passed away before, years before, she meets her husband. And then she passes away. That had me thinking, what are the carts going to say about me? Oh, I had this great career, and I was able to provide for my family. I was such a good neighbor, and all things are great. But if there's not a cart that says, I lived a life for Christ, none of those other carts really matter. Because we're only here for one purpose. And that's to live a life that's honoring to him. Missionary C.T. Sud says this, Only one life shall soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are we living a life on mission, a life devoted and dedicated to the purposes God created us for? As we close our service and as we prepare our hearts to partake in communion, I want to be reminded of the sacrifice of the cross, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, the gospel mission, the reason why Jesus came here on earth. And I want you to take a moment to ask yourself, and the question, am I living a life for him? Before we partake, it's a great time for us to ask that question because if the answer is no, then during your time of reflection, before you partake of the bread and take of the cup, would you ask the Lord, here, here I am, use me, send me as your vessel. But I do want to live a life on mission for you. We don't want to just partake in communion as something traditional, and something we do every single month without realizing the weight, what Jesus actually did for us. Not just the eternal security, which is obviously the main benefit, the main reason, the main purpose. But then in return, we live a life for him because we only have one life. We want to make it count. We want to make it matter. So let's pray as we get ready for communion. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time to be able to open your word, to be able, Father, to hear your voice as you speak to us in different ways, Father, we're all on a different journey. We're on a different process of sanctification. You know what each of us need to hear from you, Father. And Father, as we're about to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive communion, to remember, as you told us to do, Father, of your body being broken and your blood being shed for us, Father. We thank you, Lord, that you've forgiven our sins. We thank you that we have eternal security in you, Father. We thank you, Father, we can reflect on this moment and ask ourselves, are we living a life for you? A life on mission, Lord. Or are we living a life for our own mission, our own ambitions, the things that we want to gain? And some of them are good things, Lord. But it's not the most important thing. It's to live our life daily for you, Father. So would you speak to us, Lord, in this moment? Will you allow for our hearts and our minds to be open and cleansed? The word reminds us that before we partake, may we examine ourselves and may you Allow us to do that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. If you have found this content helpful, consider sharing the episode with friends or leave us a rating and review. 
For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. You are loved.